In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. I've put it out there for, boy, about a year and a half, trying to get a psychiatrist on the podcast who was willing to broach these very controversial, nuanced, and challenging topics, certainly around the value and the scientific foundations, safety, efficacy of psychiatric drugs, the DSM diagnosis, how psychiatrists are currently trained and practicing. Now, we've had psychiatrists on this podcast previously, but I don't think either one were willing to discuss some of these topics. They were really kind of considering themselves uh, advancing the conversation with new science and, and new research, including Dr. Christopher Palmer, which we appreciate. But I am honored today to welcome to the Radically Genuine po podcast, Dr. Doug Beach, who is a psychiatrist that's been in practice in Columbus, Ohio, beautiful area, for 32 years. The last 24 in full-time outpatient practice where he specializes in, in individual psychotherapy, and pharmacologic therapies. He is board certified in both general psychiatry and forensic psychiatry and has served as an expert witness in both civil and criminal legal matters. He is also an independent psychiatric evaluator for the Federal Aviation Administration. Dr. Beach attained his medical degree from Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine in 1990 after a bachelor's degree in integrated life sciences from Kent State. After an internship in pediatrics at Children's Hospital in Columbus, he completed his residency in psychiatry at Harding Hospital, where he also served as chief resident. After serving as medical director of a partial hospitalization program at Harding, Dr. Beach then served as chief of adult inpatient psychiatry at Riverside Methodist Hospital in Columbus, where he was a member of the active medical staff from 1995 through 2015. He served as a consultant to Franklin County Residential Services for 25 years and to Consumer Support Services of Licking County for 22 years. Both agencies serve adults with intellectual disabilities and in intermediate care facilities. He is a member of the clinical faculty at the Wexner Medical Center, Ohio State University Department of Psychiatry, where he serves as a psychotherapy supervisor for senior psychiatry residents. He is currently writing a book for the general public about mental health and various ways to apply the bio-psychosocial model. You can find him on Twitter at Dr. Beach. He certainly has a diverse background that I think adds to this conversation. Dr. Beach, welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Speaking of which, why did you decide to come on and have this conversation with me? Well, uh, a number of reasons. You know, I uh, first uh, 
started to wade into the world of, of Twitter at the recommendation. I'm wor working on a book, as you mentioned, and uh, some of the folks in this uh, working creative group I was in said, what do you mean you're not on social media? So I ventured in and you know, my, uh, my background, as you kind of mentioned, I'm more of a psychotherapist and I, I ventured my mission to be maybe similar to, to some of the themes that you emphasize. You know, there's too much over-medicalization of mental health problems, uh, the biological model versus a psychosocial model. And I pictured myself going on to defend, going on Twitter and interacting with folks to enlighten them to the importance of psychotherapy and a biopsychosocial model and to not think reductionist, reductionistically. Um, but I was immediately kind of surprised to find um, there was so much um, uh, material on Twitter around uh, people who had been harmed by psychiatric treatments and who were um, very critical of, of the medical model, which you know I feel has its place. Uh, but so much so that I, I paradoxically found myself defending sort of the medical aspect of that biopsychosocial, you know, the biological aspect, because they, there's a there's a, an important place for that too. Um, when uh, some of your um, posts had come up, you know, I had responded, and every now and then I would hear you say, "Well, why won't any of these Twitter psychiatrists?" Which it's funny for me to think of myself that way, but um, come on my podcast and debate me, and I'm like, "Well, I don't, I'm not sure it's a debate," but um, I decided, you know, and I, I've this isn't news to anyone, but you know, one of the things missing in our uh, society more broadly is the ability to have constructive conversations, especially with people that you disagree with or have different views for. And that's, and, um, that's not good. And I said, so in the spirit of that, um, you know, I reached out to you and said, well, you know, if we could have a civil, uh, even if we disagree about some things, I think we do agree about some things. But maybe we can model a healthy conversation even on the things we disagree and uh, still be uh, respectful and, and professional. And you know, I, as I said to you, I, I trust your intentions. Uh, I think we, we're in alignment with some things in terms of furthering a conversation. And these are very complicated, nuanced matters. And I'm hoping I can add into that. Sure, I hope so. I mean, we've been talking on this podcast about the censoring of science. Uh, the restriction and limitation of, of information. I don't know if Twitter helps. I mean, Twitter is certainly a, a forum in, in which people have a voice. And I've learned a lot through the exposure to people on Twitter who've been harmed by the system. I've got 20 years experience myself, whereas, you know, it, it validates a lot of their, their concerns. But I agree with you. There, there, there's nuance. Um, and these are complex issues of an evolving science. And my, one of my greatest concerns is the reductionist model and how a lot of what is now mainstream information in the Western world in the United States appears to be information that is certainly serving the interests of the pharmaceutical industry and the alignment of contemporary psychiatry with the pharmaceutical industry has led us down a path in which we've become more aligned with oversimplified diagnoses that have actually impaired our ability to be able to understand the complexity of the human experience. And then medical interventions and the medicalization of our culture has 
created a substantial drug-related problem. And so, many, so much of the information that, and I believe there's a robust science out there, um, is really uh, certainly not available to the general public. And when you have primary care physicians, psychiatric nurses in a sick care model that is resembling more of an assembly line, I think we're seeing more and more people harmed. But I think you and I are going to agree on, on some of that. And I think it's more important up front right now um, for you to talk about where you oppose my mission or some of the things I'm, I'm discussing or putting out there on social media or on this podcast. Where are there some points of contention between the two of us? Mm -hmm. Well, if I may, I just wanted to propose that, um, you know, from the get-go, when we say there's nuance here and we're talking about uh, science, in psychiatry, there are no definitive answers, almost by definition. Um, that's not a redundant phrase. You know, if something is a problem uh, of, of thought or behavior or emotion and it doesn't have a concrete explanation, then it's a psychiatric problem. If it does have a definitive explanation, we don't think of it as a psychiatric problem. You know, the best historical example of this that uh, is often cited is, you know, neurosyphilis. You know, the syphilis in its later stages affects the brain. But prior to us knowing what syphilis was or that there was an infection, uh, those folks um, were in the psychiatric wards, uh, the asylum model of the late uh, 19th century and uh, accounted for 20% of admissions. Um, but once it was discovered that that was an infection, um, that's no longer a psychiatric problem, that's an infectious disease. You know? And then thankfully we have treatments where we don't see that anymore uh, uh, with the advent of penicillin. So that's just an example. But so just by definition, when we're talking about disorder or problems or impairments in the emotional or mental sphere, we're talking about things that don't have a definitive uh, answer and that's what we're left to deal with. So it leaves a lot of blur. Um, we'll put this visual in the notes, I know, but I this uh, chart here where we picture a linear continuum. At one end, uh, we have illness um, or impairment, cle clearer illness. Um, and at the other end, we just have what we might call life problems, adjustment problems, uh, both of which could manifest as a disturbance in mood or thinking, behavior, et cetera. And what I would say, and this is kind of a segue or, or related to the diagnostic system, but you know, there, there are the core, what I would call the core psychiatric disorders that predate psychiatry even, and predate pharmacology. You know, the, the things that have been written about for centuries, um, you find in Greek medical literature and you find in Shakespeare, melancholia, uh, mania, psychosis, the dementias. Um, there are these, and there are, that's not a complete list, you know, OC, obsessive compulsive disorder. There are these core conditions that exist that are um, in some ways validly conceptualized as an illness. And, and there are also problems that can be manifest that um, are not. And so what I would say is at the at either end of this spectrum, 
this continuum between life, normal life, and illness, in on this spectrum, at either end, it's it's fairly easy to tell the difference. And you know, there's there's not much disputing when you know a, a despondent adolescent has gone through a breakup and you know they can't sleep and they're just distraught. None of us thinks that person has a mental disorder. Oh, I would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you from day-to-day experience that they will be identified with a mental illness and a disorder and even treated as such. Yes. Well, yeah. And I, so again, I think um, you're, you're correct. And uh, that, that's where this problem comes in. But what I would say is that at one end of this spectrum, in reality, regardless of what gets done out there in practice, that's also a reality. But I'm just talking about from a conceptual point of view, there, you can tell the difference between a, quote, normal reaction in life um, and something that's temporary, likely to resolve on its own or will, will respond to support. And can, I challenge, can I challenge you on some please. of this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm just finishing up my research historically on what's considered manic depressive illness or today's identification of bipolar one disorder. So I agree mm-hmm. with you. You can look back in the medical literature dating back to Hippocrates. That mania existed. And with, a, with some people, after a manic episode, a, a drop into what we could describe as melancholia or even a deep depth of, of, of depression. So um, the identification of that, of that as an illness with unknown origin, I have no debate over. However, when I look at historical references, including research and medical texts, it was a very small percentage of the population. One could say that it's rare. And if you go to the pre-drug era, let's go back to pre-lithium, for example. A manic depressive illness, first episode of manic depressive illness, had high recovery rates. Upwards of 80% in the medical literature of those who had a manic depressive illness recovered without any additional episodes. The recovery rates were also quite strong, meaning even those who had a second or third episode, between each episode, they were functioning at a fairly high level, including uh, return to work, baseline functioning, ability to have families support themselves. And it is only within the modern conceptualization of the biomedical model and the drug model, have we distorted uh, scientific evidence to suggest these conditions are chronic. So previous conditions that have been identified as episodic, the, the major medical conceptualization and the drug treatment has created chronic disability. So you're talking about maybe 0.5 of the po- percent of the population, a prevalence rate of 0.5% being diagnosed bipolar one disorder, and then a drug era where five to 7% of the population is now diagnosed with bipolar disorder with the outcomes worsening. And so I, one of my contentions here in the modern conceptualization and treatment of these conditions is it's worsened them. It hasn't advanced the healthcare system. It's worsened and it's increased the prevalence rate. It's decreased the recovery rate. And you have physicians repeating 
information that's not based on sound science, but it was almost like a whisper down the alley that's been through the pharmaceutical industry in order to drive the sale of their drugs. Because when you're talking about short-term stabilization versus, versus uh, somebody being on drugs for life, that's significant in that financial model. Well, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's, that's where I'm leading with this is go back to the historical manic episode. We can get a consensus about that and agree on that person's got a manic episode. And um, the, the blur is in between. And the DSM um, laid the groundwork in part for that expansion into the blurry between illness and life reactions. And it just kept kept expanding. And that's what you've got now. Um, and the, another really important uh, observation here is, you know, the pre, I mean, before lithium was 1970, beginning in the 1950s, antipsychotics uh, medications were helpful for manic episodes, but a big shift. And this debatable. is based on a, debatable. Say again, that's debatable. What's debatable? When you say antipsychotics are helpful for mania. So it's, it's debatable that even that statement is debatable because you have similar evidence that would suggest that there's a naturally natural recovery process that happens under certain conditions without the drug. So sure. now if, if you're saying that there's uh, an effect for some short-term stabilization, if someone's in danger to themselves or others, when they are presenting with psychosis or mania, then I'm, then I'm with you. But when we say these general terms, antipsychotics are helpful for mania, you can see how that general statement influences our listeners. If I am experiencing mania, which the modern conceptualization, conceptualization of, of mania is not the same conceptualization of mania as it was back in 1960, then, uh, then a person might turn to antipsychotics and think they need to be on antipsychotics for the rest of their life. So that's just the nuance that I want to make sure that is clear. Yeah, and I, th I would say that that cuts both ways. And, you know, one phrase I put out there a lot is for some people. Mm -hmm. And so antipsychotics are helpful for some people with mania. And antipsychotics are not helpful for some people. Mania will sometimes resolve on its own. A lot of what you look at in, um, in that old lit older literature, though, and I think this is a really important um, shift that coincides with pharmaceutical influence, the SSRIs, and all those other topics, the shift from inpatient care to mostly outpatient care resolves on its own. Well, that might be okay if someone can go into the hospital for a year or two, not unusual during that period of time. And beginning in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, hospitalization, both public and especially private due to really aggressive managed care, um, very difficult to get admitted to a hospital. Um, and so I, I think that that's a significant change um, in our capacity to monitor folks. It used to be if you wanted to start someone on medicine or switch their medicine, uh, folks would just admit them to the hospital. You could call I, I watched this go away. It was still present when I started, but you know, a doctor from their office could call admitting and say, go walk to the floor. A person could walk right into the hospital and go onto the psych floor. I'll see you Monday morning. And now it's, there's a moat around the hospital, you know, to get, to get in. 
Um, and I'm just saying that that affects practice significantly. That's a good example of the economic practice, uh, economic forces shaping medical practice. It's not unique to mental health, but mental health lends itself because of its imprecision to aggressive um, limitations on, on resources. So um, I think the, the point I wanted to make, though, about that continuum from illness to um, to life, and it does lend itself in that blur in between. It's we we have so much imprecision, and in the face of imprecision, um, those other forces often take over um, to diagnose, um, to pres prescribe a simple remedy. Uh, I agree with you that bipolar disorder is way overdiagnosed. I would just always include the caveat that some people really have bipolar disorder and, and a subset of them, yes, they'll have episodes and they can do well in between. A subset do benefit and, and require maintenance treatment. But again, the, all of that requires nuance, careful monitoring, and that's in shorter and shorter supply. Uh, the majority of people cannot afford what I would call optimal or ideal treatment. So you started this podcast off talking about that until we understand the etiology of a condition, that it can sometimes be mislabeled as psychiatric. And that's kind of where I think about mania and depression. So you call it bipolar disorder. Okay. And I understand. Well, I'm, I'm just following the current standard literature. Yeah. Well, I mean, you did say that I believe bipolar exists and people require the drugs and it can help some people. Mm -hmm. Now, the way I look at it, is there are symptoms, there are presentations of mania, and then there are presentations of severe depressive episodes that exist. I think historically we'd say it's actually, a, the prevalence rate is very small, but they're of un unknown origin. So if we think about it as a brain condition that requires a drug to stabilize brain chemicals, and it's its own discrete illness, we are then miscommunicating that to the public. That is not accurate. And I think we are starting to advance the conversation around mental health symptom presentations having some metabolic origin that can be treated with other interventions. Dr. Christopher Palmer's book on, on brain energy speaks to the science around that and how even a ketogenic diet has stabilized people. There are too many people that are told that they have bipolar disorder and that they require the drugs for life. There's good evidence to suggest maybe upwards of 50% of those individuals are just having a drug reaction to begin with. Because, listen, we're living in the United States culture where this is a drug culture, not only from legal prescription drugs, but illegal illicit drugs. Cannabis, for example, I believe you have a five-fold increase in developing psychosis if you're a regular cannabis user. So psychiatric conditions or disorders that are communicated to the individual as a discrete medical illness likely have other origins. And by communicating that these are discrete illnesses, we are doing a couple things that I think are damaging. We are we are creating or manufacturing a condition in which the person now views 
their symptoms through that lens and sees the only avenue towards health being use of that drug. I know you might not, dis- you might not agree with that statement, but that is certainly, uh, we-, we could agree that that is the conventional treatment and it's communicated in popular culture. It also, sure. it also stops the research and investigation of all these other variables or factors that would lead to that, that presentation. And that's why I argue the modern DSM and the conceptualization of disorders are more harmful than they are helpful. Well, it's just artificially reductionistic. And as you point out, it, it creates a, uh, a narrative that just isn't accurate. There's, there's a kernel of um, validity to conceiving of these things as condition, as illnesses, but then it gets expanded. And as you point out, in, in, our, in our world, we, we want a quick fix. Um, when, you, when you use the phrase prescription drug culture, I'm always reminded of this uh, Pepsi AC television commercials for I think the late 80s, maybe early 90s. And it's a husband and wife in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, mom's making chili. And he sort of taps his uh, belly and says, oh, sorry, I won't be able to, to have that. And she holds up the Pepsi AC box, says, hey, don't worry, take this pill. You can eat whatever you want. Um, but all of us, I'd say in all of us, we seek a, um, a simple solution for complicated matters. You know, this is where I would go back to the biopsychosocial model. Everyone's mood, thoughts, feelings, emotions, behavior is always a mixture of lots of things all put together. Always. A dyna- and that goes for any kind of mood, mental, emotional state, happiness, anger, anxiety, psychosis, mania, depression, sadness. It's always a blend of things mixed together. And we could think of, the, of that, um, though all of those factors for purposes of talking about them, for purposes of uh, thinking about them and conceptualizing, we could think of that as a pie graph that has three slices in it. And you have factors that are, are physical, um, like diet, like your genetic predisposition, Um, like things such as exercise, medications, hormones, all those concrete physical things. You know, the second slice in that pie, um, you might think of as social or situational factors, the events and circumstances affecting a person. And then the third slice is the psychological, and that's, again, the biopsychosocial, our minds, our thoughts, our beliefs, our development, our personality traits and temperament, all of those things mixed together to make up a person's state. And I would apply that model to understand when there's a problem, try to apply that model to it. And in that way of thinking of it, no one in the whole world has what that particular person has. It's, it's unique to them. What happens in the medical model is you do the opposite of that. You take what is a unique, complicated and nuanced individual whom I would say their diagnosis would come in several paragraphs, not a one line. So a conceptualization the, instead of a diagnosis. Exactly. That's right. A, a, a unique um, to that person. And I often say, you know, whatever is wrong with you is already wrong with you. You, know, you walked in with it. I, I can't give it to you or take it away. Um, and it's unique to you. No one in the whole world has what you have. The problem, um, the, the problem with this, right? And I, I completely agree with you. You're sounding way too reasonable, Doug. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> listeners is going to go. Listenership is going to go down. Uh, the the problem is that the the label or the diagnosis can strip somebody of fundamental rights in this country, 
and it, it is can. it is communicated to the general public as if it's a mental illness that one would have for potentially for life, and they need to be managed by uh, by drugs that don't have safety, strong safety and efficacy support through the science. So I, I need to speak on behalf of people who have who've lost their rights because of a psychiatrist's diagnosis, not conceptualization, not the biopsychosocial interaction with this person's very unique genetic background and vulnerabilities and connection with life experiences that have led to this complexity in which they're supported and treated. No, we're talking 20 minutes and I am going to um, forcibly commit you into a hospitalization program where our outcomes generally worsen. You want to increase the likelihood someone's going to end their life, put them in a psychiatric hospital in the United States. So as reasonable as you're sounding, you are representing psychiatry and you are on the faculty of Ohio State University and we are producing psychiatrists and residents who continue to follow this model. Sure. Well, and I, again, I'll, I, I hadn't finished with the, what happens in the medical model. We do the opposite of the biopsychosocial model. We reduce it down into something too simplistic and too narrowing, and that has a, a lot of uh, negative implications. And I would say that's the, that's the story of psychiatry throughout its history. It's a mixture. Um, it's a blend, and I think the lack of precision is where we've gotten into trouble, not just in psych psychiatry, I think in mental health broadly. We, we find something that looks like it works in this group, and then we give that to everybody. We give everybody ECT. We give everybody psychoanalysis. Everybody gets 10 sessions of CBT. There's this one study that shows it helps. Okay, then everyone gets that. 15-minute uh, med checks. This one, you know, one study came out, antidepressant, CBT, everyone gets that. And again, largely driven by the, the reimbursement schedule. And so I know you, you go on quite a bit about the pharmacological, pharmaceutical industry influence. That in psychiatry, that's largely kind of come and gone, but it has left its mark. I agree with you, but that's not, that's not intensely present anymore. They've kind of given up. And as you point out, the psychoactive substances going on now have transcended organized psychiatry, medical cannabis, recreational cannabis, psychedelics on the verge, uh, ketamine clinics. There's a ketamine clinic here in Columbus with a waiting list at $500 per treatment out of pocket. Um, so I'm, what I'm, I'm agreeing with you on the undue uh, focus but at the same time, I would, I would still add for some people that diagnosis ends up causing them harm. For some people, the diagnosis is critical to them being able to get the help that they do need and do benefit from or qualify for services, be insured. So it's not a, it's not a blanket approach. I think that's probably one of my principal objections to some of the things I hear you say. Um, and as I pointed out to you in my communication, I think a little bit more qualification of, well, sometimes even if it's most of the time, but it's not all the time. Very few things hold up to always. Okay, and that doesn't always lend itself in you know, Twitter with limited characters, so let's, <laughs> let's get into yeah. that discussion. Um, I think yeah. the best way to walk down that path is antidepressants. Mm -hmm. Antidepressants are a multi, multi-billion dollar industry. Despite questionable safety, questionable efficacy, and a large 
global community of harmed patients. These drugs are in, on the rise. I think you and I have a bit of a differing opinion on its overall value to mm -hmm. society. I think we have a differing opinion on its efficacy and its overall safety. And I think we have to begin to get into the nuance of that. I think that's where you've probably been opposed to some of my positions. Yeah. Well, let's start at the beginning with this same issue that we have, and that's the to try to study the efficacy of antidepressants requires some kind of consensus around the diagnosis of depression in the first place. So from the get-go, when you're trying, especially in a clinical study uh, where you're recruiting subjects into the study, you have to somehow create the illusion that all of the subjects in the study have the same problem. And in reality, just like we were talking a moment ago with the biopsychosocial model, all the people who get the diagnosis of major depression, they don't all have the same problem. They don't all have the same mix. So out of the gate, it's really, really difficult to study that efficacy, especially when, as in the interest, especially pharma, pharmaceutical company sponsored trials, they, they need subjects, they need people to meet the criteria. And as I know, you've pointed out, um, you know, the, the, the depression rating scale, the Hamilton scale, 17 items, maximum 50 points, you got to score in the 20s to get into the study. Well, what do we think that'll do to people who want to be in the study? Um, some of the studies you get paid, there's probably an artificial inflation of those scores even if we grant it some validity to track the condition. So I think the questions about efficacy are fair. And what I would go back to is, you know, the farther you are on this continuum toward illness, the more likely the medication's gonna be efficacious. And the farther away you get from it, the less likely it's gonna be. And that's where the risk benefit, it tilts based on where a person is on that conceptual continuum. So these, the studies for a variety of reasons um, are uh, very difficult to rely on. And I don't, I don't think it's a great evidence base to defend. I would still go back to that doctor-patient relationship or clinician-patient relationship. I think that can be teased out. I think you can get some reliability seeing a patient repeatedly. Can you do that in, in a 10-minute visit in a checklist? I, I doubt it. I, I don't want to rail on primary care providers uh I, I try to put myself in their shoes i do and uh they're, they're, i they're, want to rail on them i i know well hold on and i will I, i'm just i i'm <laughs> you, you you shall you have and you shall well what i'm saying is i i always want to put myself there like what, what what were their alternatives what what was what were the other possibilities we, we tried to refer for therapy there's a six-week waiting list we called their insurance you know so again i i, I think majority of primary care providers are doing the best that they can, but it's lacking. It's not, as I said, I think the optimal care isn't available to most people. Um, but not to, I want to stay on the track here. I would say antidepressants, yes, not, not the great, not a good decision for a substantial portion of those who take them, but also very helpful to some of those people who take them. Okay. Um, my rebut. There, there is no such thing as an antidepressant, okay? That is a marketing term, and it has influenced too many. I hate even using it, so I'm not going to use it today. 
an SSRI, which is the primary drug that is provided to anyone presenting with any, I don't even want to use this word, symptom of depressed <laughs> mood. Now, um, and anxiety. And, and, and anxiety. The, the yeah. idea that there is a percentage of the population that could benefit from antidepressants and the more severe that presentation, the greater the response. I do not agree that that is supported by any sound science. What I would agree is that the more severe the individual, um, the greater the decrease on a symptom checklist we will observe when there is a, a medical or professional interaction. Now, I have looked at this every single way from every single angle, okay? And there are multiple things that could influence why somebody would get better after an intervention. And I'm not denying that someone reports feeling better after an intervention, but there is this uh, term, post hoc ergo propter hoc, right? Uh, after this, therefore resulting from this. And we know that that's a fallacy and that's why we have to have sound scientific research. Now, um, the most important thing from the biopsychosocial model is the, is the mystery of the human mind, right? We are infants in that development as, uh, as a mental health field and really understanding the, the mysterious nature of the human mind. The placebo effect is a great kind of uh, reflection of what we don't know and maybe our potential to heal ourselves with uh, our, own, our own beliefs, our own mind. I think it's powerful. And we all know that the, there is a substantial portion of the clinical population that will report improvement in mental health related conditions based on no intervention, just the belief that they received it. So that, that placebo arm of the randomized control trial. It can range from 30 to 45% in adults up to 65% in younger people. It is substantial. Now, the, the drug companies certainly had a very difficult time being able to distinguish the drug-related group from the placebo group, probably because of... Um, you know, that power of the mind. But I'm not denying that there is some reaction, some physiological response that someone would have to a psychoactive substance like an antidepressant, which is part of the problem because blind was broken. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the clinical researchers and the patients themselves knew they were taking the drug. You know, you take an antidepressant, you know you're going to be on the antidepressant. People feel it. For a portion of the population, they report emotional flattening or numbing. Not everybody, but a portion of the population. That's the diversity and uniqueness of everybody genetically and, how, and speaks to the point of why we can't always mass apply one intervention to the entire population. I have always conceded that emotional numbing or flattening for someone who is in high level of distress, potentially could be viewed, at least in the short term, as a relief 
or as feeling better. That is not antidepressant, and that is rarely discussed with the, with the patients. Rarely are they told, listen, the best thing that's going to happen here is you're going to get some emotional blunting or flattening and a belief that this could um, alter your physiology because you believe you're genetically vulnerable to this illness. That's not what they're told. They're, they're provided information that um, they use the words like antidepressant, which in itself is going to have a, an influence. But they're also not told that the emotional flattening and numbing could also lead to the numbing of the genitals and a permanent sexual dysfunction. They're, they're not told that there's a percentage of the, po- of the clinical populations who take this are going to feel suicidal and might even want to end their life or experience akathisia. It's usually very, very minimized. And so my point being is it's a serious drug intervention that might lead to some flattening of of affect or blunting of emotion or even a sedative effect for somebody. Since the trials are only eight weeks, we don't really have great evidence to suggest that someone would have to be on them for life. We don't have any evidence of some long-term positive effect to the drugs. Rarely is somebody placed on only one drug. It starts with that, then they add another and they add another. Now it's a complete experimentation but it's all under the disguise. There's just medical legitimacy to this drug that, that a marketing team said is antidepressant. And so I do agree with you when you make a statement that says it's very difficult to determine what is actual depression given everyone kind of presents differently. But we always go back to how it's communicated and how, it's being, how clients are currently being treated. So is there any debate with what I just said? Well, I've, and I've heard, I've listened to several of your podcasts. I think I've listened to each one uh, that are specifically about antidepressants. So I've, I've heard these, these claims. And you're pointing out a, um, a, a fundamental problem, and this gets back to the imprecision, not just in diagnosis, but you know, the medications, um, we're hoping they affect a sort of narrow part of of the brain, that's the ideal, but they don't. They, they, our nerves are all over our bodies. So there's a, there's a blanket kind of shotgun type of effect that all these different drugs have. Um, I think antidepressant was, is just a convention. Again, it goes back to, it's an unfortunate one, but, um, but it was capitalized and used as a marketing strategy, absolutely. Um, you know, psychiatry broadly, you said I'm here representing, I, I don't feel I'm here representing psychiatry broadly because it's not a, it's not a monolith. Um, you know, it's a, it's a diverse group of people, um, that practice in a variety of ways. And, um, I think the nuance, the, the, the terminology, there's a semantic element to emotional numbing, um, because it, it suggests the, the lack of, um, feeling, um, if someone's having panic or severe hopelessness, that in a way is a is a um, feeling we're hoping to uh, lessen. Um, but here's how I say it to patients: is we don't know if this medicine is going to work, and even if you feel better, we won't know it was the medicine. It could be you were going to get better anyway. It could be just because you're hopeful, and I think we should just concede that to to tolerate the ambiguity of not knowing. Um, those side effects you mentioned, certainly, I mean, you know, the list of side effects that comes with the drug, it would take an hour to, to just to read, not, not just to discuss, but the things that are common, 
uh, should certainly, a person should certainly be informed of. And the, I think the things that have gotten missed, like the withdrawal effects or the activation, um, those things should always be mentioned whenever prescribed. And I agree with you that I can't imagine that they are um, in the settings in which the majority of these medicines are prescribed. Um, I think there's, it's likely that, I mean, there's variable outcomes when you do this research, but the percentage of people who get diagnosed with depression and get treated with depression medicine, um, the, the majority of them never see a mental health professional. And in one study, it was only a third did. Um, and that doesn't mean the primary cares aren't recommending that they do, but the reality is many people say, well, I'll try the medicine and see how I feel. And a, it's likely that a large percentage of those folks do reasonably well with it and they would never call you and they would never call me. Um, we're likely to see the people for whom medicine isn't a good idea or is not all of what they need and you know, they probably should be doing other things. Um, so that's, again, it just speaks to the vast pool. When you have 30 some million people taking a drug every day, it's about the same number that go to McDonald's, but that's, it's 30, sometimes mid forties, but mil tens of millions of people take antidepressants just in the United States every day. That's a huge group of people. Um, I also would just like to mention the, the word rare. I mean, if it's 1% or a half a percent, it's still a lot of people. Um, you know, so have, you know, 0.5% of the American population would be around one and a half million people. Um, one percent of uh, our population would be three and a half million people. So um, I just want to make sure we always tend to that group um, with what we say about things like brainwashing or the drug, you're being drugged, you're being told a lie. I mean, I don't I want to make sure that when we say things like that, that we're speaking also to those people who, in, even if it's a small percentage, who do benefit. Yeah, I mean that's where that's where we're going to disagree. I, I you know I, I think the the value of of research is to protect the well being of of people. That idea of benefit is somewhat nebulous. I don't know what you mean by that. Um, the idea that someone who is the majority of people who are depressed walk into a primary care setting, walk out with a with a drug, and then they're just getting better, so we don't ever see them. Um, it probably speaks to your point earlier that that's the percentage of the population that never required the drug in the first place. And our centers are overwhelmed. Like my center is absolutely overwhelmed. It's not like it was the 80s or 90s and it was stigmatized to seek out mental health treatment. Um, you know, this mental health treatment's big business right now. And there are lots of mental health professionals that exist. And there is a, such a large percentage of the population that is turning to drugs and diagnoses that would have never met that classification in previous generations. Now, the drugs themselves, I don't have strong enough evidence to say they help some people outside the bounds of what is a natural recovery, because most emotional problems are episodic, right? They're going to resolve themselves on its own um, by, the, by, by nature of, of life. You cope. Challenges exist, you overcome them. Life is painful. Emotional pain is part of living. I don't see it as a symptom of, uh, of an illness. 
Now, if you're going to say that there's a, a percentage of the population that experiences a severity of depression that requires clinical intervention, I'm right there with you. The questions are, then what are the safest interventions and have the greatest outcomes? And I think we would all agree that the safest interventions aren't drug interventions, but they've become frontline treatments in the American mental health system and our medical system. Frontline treatments without safety and efficacy. So when you say the percentage of people that it helps, well, I look at the long-term problems with these drugs. There's no doubt the longer you're on the drug, it increases the likelihood you're gonna have a depressive episode. There are significant health effects, including metabolic illness, weight gain. We're just on the, I think we're on the, um, the, the frontline opportunity to be able to understand the complexity of health from so many different perspectives. One of them is psychoneuroimmunology, right? That's biopsychosocial. And we're learning that this, every thought, every experience has its own unique reaction and impacts your gut and gut microbiome and your nervous system and your immune system. And if we're talking about trying to disrupt natural processes with pretty serious psychotropic medications with pretty serious adverse side effects, I don't think it's honest to the American people just to say, hey, it helps some, some people. Hopefully you're one of those people. And when there's millions and millions of people taking these drugs, and when we look at statistics in society, I don't think either one of us on this podcast can say we're moving in a direction where we feel good about our culture, about our, our, our medical system. We're seeing increases in, in violence, um, mental health-related conditions, suicide, death by despair. I don't think it's accurate to say, hey, they help somebody when we don't know that. When it could certainly be just the natural recovery, it could be the, the doctor-patient interaction, it could be the emotional blunting, it could be a placebo effect. And so if we're going to advance the conversation, we have to move beyond the drug care model of the allopathic training of physicians in the Western world. And so, I mean, that's where my, my point is. I think many more people are harmed than helped. And I'm, I'm, I'm in a system here where um, every day we're seeing teenagers on three, four, five psychiatric drugs. And when these, when these teenagers start experiencing things like intrusive thoughts, difficulty sleeping, feeling lethargic, the doctors, and it's a big hospital system in our area, and it's just growing. It's big, big business. The doctors are reporting that to be a symptom of their mental illness. And let's up this drug or let's add another one. And the, and the parents don't know what to do. They don't, by their gut, they, they don't believe that their child is getting better. However, when you have a physician in our society with the degree of power that a physician will have, we, have, we become submissive to the medical authority without asking questions. And in some cases, the medical authority would say, if you don't follow my recommendations, well, then you are neglecting the needs of your own child. And that is the damage of the biomedical model and the training of psychiatry in the Western world. This is a, they're telling this is a discrete and medical illness with underlying causes, just like diabetes. 
and you must take these drugs or you are neglecting your child and you are even at risk of me contacting Child Protective Services. Yeah, I don't know who could, uh, who could try to defend that. And you're right that this is, a, um, this is one piece in a large, complicated system that, has, uh, that is flawed um, in many, many ways. Again, I, what I would go back to is um, the one-to-one -one relationship, the elaborate, thorough discussion, and trying to understand a, what is problematic and difficult for an individual person. Um, I think that's the ideal. I think the ideal is not available to most people. And um, that's, that's a commentary on, on how our culture functions as well. Um, yeah, I don't, and I don't know what the fix is for that. Um, I'm not sure what the alternatives are. And as I said, I think the bigger waves of societal change going on in many ways usurp the formal healthcare uh, offerings, the medical model, uh, what we offer in mental health care broadly, um, larger forces at play here, um, sort of usurping the influence of um, that narrow stripe. I had a pediatrician in front of me a couple of weeks ago, and this was my opportunity. This is my opportunity to really understand what pediatricians are doing and why they are doing it. So as you know, about 80% of these psychiatric drugs are being prescribed in primary care settings. So it's not a psychiatry problem. It's a, uh, a physician problem for the most part. And I got this individual to at least admit that he really has no sufficient background and training in the assessment, identification, and the treatment of mental health-related conditions. However, he feels pressured to have to follow guidelines by major medical organizations like the Academy of Pediatrics. Follow the money, take a look at some of these major medical organizations and how they are funded, and they create these guidelines. So that there's fear for the practicing physician. If I have a teenager that's in front of me and they report having suicidal thoughts, even though antidepressants can increase the likelihood of a suicide event compared to placebo in a teenager, because of these guidelines, the physician feels he has to prescribe that psychiatric drug, at least that SSRI to start. Or if something would happen to this teenager, he could be held liable. Now, that's a big problem, a really big problem, because I do have an answer to some of the questions. Like you said, I don't know what, what do they do in these situations. Well, when watchful waiting is a more effective intervention than prescribing the drug, you don't do anything. You take it seriously and you follow up. Now, if you can get them to a mental health treatment provider like a psychologist, or a psychiatrist who does outpatient private practice in psychotherapy, which is rare nowadays, unfortunately, or even a social worker or, or even a counselor, that person can be observed over time and monitored. And you can take the time to evaluate what is happening within that individual's life that's leading them to feel this way. And then we're not viewing those emotions as a symptom of an illness, but a natural reaction to events in one's life. Now, I think there's questionable when you start drawing the lines of like calling something an illness versus something not an illness. 
I certainly have concerns about that approach, especially when we look at, you know, just evolutionary biology. Like I don't in any way discredit or disregard the complex reactions that we have physically in response to emotional stress. I just don't, I just don't fall into the model that when somebody reacts, even if it's psychosis or even if it's mania, that it's necessarily not some um, evolutionary adaptation to stress or there's some underlying cause that's not just, is just unknown that we can't begin to, you know, treat more effectively with, with time. And I think time in these mental health conditions, especially depression, often is going to lead to positive outcomes. Now, it's not just time, but it's also time with support. It's also time with helping somebody cope. It's also time with validation. It's also with giving parents education. So, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you how many teens have been forced into hospitals in our region and how many teens have been taking multiple drugs after following an event that traditionally we would view as quite normal for the teen experience and just another developmental milestone for them to overcome. And we've lost our conceptualization of what is normal, what are normal developmental challenges. And instead it's being slapped on with a diagnosis and that diagnosis is being communicated as an illness. And so for the, for the doctors in the primary care centers who are prescribing these drugs without the, the training, and they're doing it based on fear, I'm not going to let you off the hook. You have an ethical and legal responsibility. It also takes courage, um, high character, and morality to not provide an intervention that could be potentially harmful and is outside your boundaries of competence. So until we have good people, basically medical professionals, physicians who are able to stand up against this care, it's going to be status quo, Doug. And status quo is creating harm. Well, a few minutes ago, you, you said the clear line between illness. I, I, my point was that there isn't a clear line. Um, so I wanted to make sure that's, but in, in, the, in that practice world, you're correct that, that that provider is making a decision based on what they've got at the time. And I would say there's this subset of people who, yeah, they, it, will res, it will resolve with time. It will resolve with support. There's a subset that it'll worsen um, too. And that's there. Um, do we have any the, data on that, on that subset? Do we, do we know that person or that percentage or under what conditions that would be? I, for the same reasons we've discussed, I, I don't think that research is available, but we do know from clinical experience, we, we have a, um, you know, we have a base suicide rate. Um, we have the clinical um, reporting of case reports, again, which are anecdotal, but it's still some evidence. And we have our own clinical experience. Um, you know, we're all affected by the things we go through and, and carry with us those biases. I think uh, you mentioned at the top, the, um, you know, my time spent uh, working in this uh, group home setting for folks with uh, intellectual disabilities was very influential to me because we had a controlled setting. Um, you had people watching these folks around the clock probably not subject to placebo effects because of sort of intellectual level, some of them not verbal even, 
but uh, dramatic improvements in uh, those core conditions of psychosis or uh, severe OCD. OCD type syndromes are common in autism, they're common in Down syndrome and uh, dramatic uh, improvements. Um, so that, that affects and sort of biases me, I think, toward being able to see. These are folks I followed, some of which I followed those that entire 25 years, saw them regularly um, and could track the, the improvements. Um, and we also were mandated to try reductions in dosages uh, periodically, which again, I think is a good thing. But without that rapport and that ongoing relationship to monitor these uh, reactions, both for the good and the bad, I think it's the model we have now where this care is being delivered. It's, it's just, it's a wide open with more uncertainty than, than certainty. Yeah, I, I think where I, where I step back right now and I reflect on our discussion here, it seems like we widely agree, but you are, you are saying there's, there are some people, you know, that it helps. I don't know who they are. Um, I don't un understand under what conditions, but there are some people, so I'm not willing to go all the way in with where we've kind of advanced in, in, in the system. I've, I've seen it help some people. Um, and I think, again, I, I think I, I don't disagree with the fact that, um, a psychiatric intervention in the short term can be helpful. Um, I've always, even on Twitter, I say psychiatric drug interventions should be rare and should be short term. And I think that fits the, that fits the evidence along with informed consent. So the individual has to be aware of the, of the risks if somebody's quality of life is so poor, they have every right to, to take any intervention that's available to them on the current market. And if they are someone that can feel better even for a short period of time, then I'm a man of compassion. Yes, I support that. I've never said let's, let's abandon all psychiatric drugs off the market and not have that as, a, as an available option. I just believe that it's really should be, should be rare and we should be open about what it's actually doing. It's not correcting an underlying abnormality. It's creating an abnormality. It's creating an imbalance and that could have a sedative effect that could depress cognitive functioning. Um, it certainly could allow somebody to sleep and not feel so agitated. Now, does that mean it is curing obsessive compulsive disorder? Does that mean it's curing a bipolar disorder? No, I would say no. You're, you're, in, you're inducing a chemical reaction or response, at least for the short term, that is going to provide that person relief and maybe stabilize a condition. But we don't really have evidence that it's, it's going to improve quality of life long term. As you know, the body and brain are going to adapt, right? You're going to need more and more of, of the substance um, to achieve some sort of what you would d define as, as stability. But it also uh, really appears to impair functioning in the long term. So if there wasn't those, that negative poor quality of life that's associated with those drugs, which are pretty clear, I think our, our, our evidence base is pretty strong on that, whether that's antipsychotics or what is commonly referred to as mood stabilizers, the effects of that tend to really impair quality of life. And I just believe that in our field, when you talk about research, 
that we should be focusing on improving functioning and quality of life, not just decreasing symptoms in, that are um, in, a, in a temporary fashion and then identify that or generalize that as recovery from a particular problem. Yeah, and there's some quality of life research that, I mean, antidepressants fare better if you use quality of life measures actually compared to using the Hamilton uh, scale. Um, but I, I agree with that. Of course, that's what we should be striving for. Um, and I, I didn't at any point say, I don't know who they're going to benefit. I, I see that as a one-on-one -on -one interaction, an ongoing dialogue with an individual um, and make that judgment with that individual, trying to give, in, give them the information um, necessary to make, make, that, make a judgment about whether that particular treatment will be helpful for them. And again, admitting we can't know ahead of time who it's going to help, who it's not going to have an effect on, and who it's going to harm. We have some idea of the percentages. But as I said, the limitations of studying the effectiveness of antidepressant treatments is the very the heterogeneity of the condition that's that is called depression, and um, that is that's a weakness. Um, and people who want a clear answer, um, they won't find it in in the world of psychiatry. It's um, it's too ambiguous, by almost by by definition. Yeah, I asked you that question because um, looked into some of the the science on diminishing mutations and metabolizing genes of the CYP450 family. And these drugs are being prescribed without any genetic testing to determine who is unable to actually even metabolize these drugs. And the quote, I'm going to quote this from a paper based on uh, mutations in the metabolizing genes for those who are prescribed an SSRI, sudden, as opposed to slow, withdrawal of serotonin-boosting serotonin antidepressants or other substances in an akathisia sufferer may make the problem worse, and staying on them once akathisia has developed is equally dangerous. It's the author's contention that prescribing antidepressants without knowing about the CY P450 genotypes is like giving blood transfusions without matching for ABO groups. And if, we're, if, this, is, if this is going to be a science, and psychiatry is a, a medical profession based on science, how do you prescribe a drug without even knowing that that person is unable to metabolize that drug and it could kill them? Well... There actually is genetic testing available, fairly readily available. It's not routinely done. I mean, the short answer to how do you do that practically, and remember 40-ish million people are taking these medicines every day, um, is you start with a really low dose and you are available to that patient if they've got a problem. You caution them, but you start with a really low dose. And we that is one thing that comes out of the FDA approval process is, you know, they, they test the drugs at wide ranges of doses that account for variabilities in both sensitivity to the, to the drug and metabolic variability, which we know exists. And, you know, the person who has a dramatic reaction right away you, at the low dose, 
you can guess they're probably not metabolizing it um, properly. Um, I'm not aware of any SSRI being lethal, um, even an overdose of massive amounts. But yeah, uh, you, you have to be sensitive to that. But practically, you manage that through um, dosing very cautiously at first. And then again, quick follow up, not here's a prescription, let us know how you're doing. But let's talk later in the week, or let's meet again next next week. That's the proper way to do that. And it's I think the evidence, again, you have tens of millions of people taking these every day, is that um, you don't see drugs killing people by not being able to metabolize them. I, I disagree. Uh, we had a gentleman on our, on our podcast who, and this is what I mean by it, it being lethal. The gentleman on the podcast, 40-some-year-old male with no psychiatric history, uh, had job-related stress. He was prescribed an SSRI. He fits the percentage of the population that can't metabolize that drug. He developed psychosis and akathisia. And he was convinced that he was going to have to murder his young son. And he did. And uh, this gentleman is now very open and trying to advocate for knowing the effects of your drugs. He uh, was able to be um, acquitted with strong medical evidence that it was the drug that induced the homicide. And I think when we talk about the increased, it's at least two and a half times risk of suicide compared to placebo when we're talking about SSRI. So uh, I would say those are fatal. Um, and it, look at... The, look at the school shooters or the, the violence that occurs and, and, and examine how many of them were on at least one psychiatric drug. So um, I just want to be clear that I do see that these drugs are potentially fatal. And for all the families out there, the parents I've, I've spoken to whose child ended their life by suicide when they weren't suicidal prior to the antidepressant or uh, you know the spouses who've lost their their wife or husband, uh, when again they were placed on these drugs for sleep or anxiety or work-related stress, and then they ended up ending their life. We want to validate that these drugs are dangerous, and they shouldn't be so widely and easily prescribed haphazardly. Yes, we know a lot of people will not have that reaction. Most people will not. Uh, that does not justify us minimizing the risks. But I, I didn't mean to minimize the risks at all. And I, I was speaking specifically when you brought the enzyme and the metabolism as the medicine itself causing a toxic lethal reaction. I'm not aware of that. I, as a separate matter, triggering people, being activating, all that, that's a separate con, uh, conversation. So again, um, that is, you know, you brought up the two to three times the suicide risk. I, I think that is not accurate. And that, that is one of the things that you say repeatedly that I do uh, object to. It's on um, the drug websites. I, okay. Yeah. Well, you, yes. you go to the SSRI websites I've, by the drugs have, and they will, they will list it. Now, they, that, no, hold on. Please let me finish. Go ahead. They, they publish suicidality, which is a risk factor for suicide, no doubt. And in the FDA black box warning that you're referring to, 
with 4,000 plus. These, this is, uh, I believe, older adolescents. The incidence of suicidality was twice as high in the group on the drugs compared with the placebo. Um, 4% versus 2%. But so that is an increase in the risk for suicidality, which they, in that study, or in the FDA's review, defined as increased in suicidal ideas, which is a risk factor for suicide, but it isn't proportional to suicide risk. Um, it's, it's a difference, it's an exponential difference, the incidence of suicidality versus the incidence of completed suicide. And so again, I don't want to minimize the risk. I think that antidepressants in a subset of people who take them it, do get amplified and become more suicidal. That is the case. Um, but that is not the same as a doubling of the risk of completed suicide. It's exponentially different. So I, I don't think it's accurate to say they double the risk of suicide. Um, it's not even close to doubling the risk of suicide. It's possible that they increase it very slightly. And what I would what I would assert is that they increase it in a subset of that total group. They probably decrease it in another subset. But I don't think it's accurate to say they double the risk of suicide. There were no suicides in that group. Zero. Now, if I could use if I could use another analogy that might illustrate this. And it's like the relationship between nausea and vomiting. If you ran a study, a placebo versus a drug, let's say for blood pressure, or any other condition, if the group who took the drug had a 4% incidence of nausea and the group who took the placebo had a 2% incidence of nausea, we could say that the drug doubled your risk of nausea. But Back to the antidepressants, what you're saying is that the drug doubled your risk of vomiting, which, which wouldn't be accurate. And just try to think, step back and think about it broadly. Suicidal ideation occurs in just in, if you study that on a survey, even in non-clinical populations, in 8 to 10% of the gross population, that's like millions of people have suicidal ideation. It is a risk factor for completed suicide. But the portion, the, the fraction of the total people who, who experience suicidal ideation, only a very small percentage will actually complete suicide. So again, I don't wanna downplay the risk here, but I wanna make sure you're defining what the risk is. If you tell someone your risk of suicide is double if you take the drug, that, that is not, that's not an accurate claim. I'll give you a chance to respond. Yeah, I disagree. <clears throat> I, I was just bringing up here, I think this is from the Lexapro website. Warnings, suicidality in antidepressant drugs. Antidepressants increased the risk compared to placebo of suicidal thinking and behavior in mm -hmm. children, adolescents, and young adults. And this is only in short-term studies. In short-term studies of major depressive disorder and other psychiatric disorders, Anyone considering the use of Lexapro or any other antidepressant, child, adolescent, or young adult must balance this risk with the clinical need. Now, um, I believe it's—I believe the risk is higher than two and a half times for younger for younger people. 
of suicidality or of suicide because they're not the same thing. I, I Suicidal can... behavior is also not a completed suicide. I understand. But in order to in order define it. in order to end your life, you have to be suicidal first. So yeah, that's we, a, we can, I agree. That's, a, that's we can, I agree. It's a risk factor. It goes in that direction. Just like you have to be nauseated first before you vomit. But the majority of people who get nauseated do not vomit. So let me finish. Okay, I'm sorry. There's a 45 percent increase in adolescent death by suicide in the last 10 years. So we can see that there is a dramatic increase in death by suicide in a population where those numbers historically were, again, quite rare. We have to make sense of that, Doug. What's also increasing at the dramatic rate is a, an intervention that has a black box, black box warning, and it's not easy to have a black box warning, where it increases suicidality, right? So we don't know who is going to have increased suicidality that's going to lead to a suicidal event versus who does not. It's probably around the quality of care and the home environment and access. So if you have increased suicidal thoughts and you want to end your life and you're in good treatment and you have loving parents, and you don't have access to the means, just because they didn't end their life doesn't mean that we don't talk about that suicidal, that increase in suicidal behavior as something that is critical in trying to understand what these drugs do. The, if you've ever looked at the, the NIMH study, the TAD study, 34 adolescents treated with uh, Prozac had a suicide event compared to only three on placebo. We know this is anecdotally, anecdotally as well, is that people will report feeling suicidal after the drugs when they didn't experience suicidality prior to taking the drugs. So I, I can understand that just because one experiences suicidality after the drug intervention doesn't mean it's the drug intervention, but we're talking about no relevant history. So, I mean, I do think if you're going to take the position that, um, that these drugs don't significantly increase the likelihood that there could be a suicide event, well, then that's when I, I, I think you're a little bit outside the, the mainstream. I think we can recognize that these drugs for a percentage of people increase the likelihood of a suicide event. The most vulnerable are the young people. I'm glad you brought up the TAD study because I know you've, you've spoken about it before and that's usually what you've shared about it. But I, I, didn't, I didn't say it's not an increase in the risk. I didn't say that. But it is not double the risk. It's not even close to doubling, which is, I think, your... That's what your the FDA reports. No, that there's a difference between risk of suicide versus risk of suicidal thinking and behavior, cutting, making plans... Uh, taking actions. And you're right, means all those factors go into whether there's a completed suicide. Um, I, I do want to address the prescription rate of antidepressants and the suicide rate because those two things right now in time are mapping together. Again, worthy of scrutiny. Um, now, are you aware of those factors in the 90s? Um, the rate of antidepressant prescription and the rates of suicide, specifically in young people. Because between 1990 and 2000, 
the rate of completed suicide in adolescents went down every year, and especially in, in adolescent males, it went from, I think, the number 10, this is per 100,000 per population, down to about six. And during that same time, the prescription of antidepressants to that age group went up four to five fold, like four to 500%. Um, completed suicide, multi-factors, mostly social, socioeconomic that influence it. But I think if you're gonna track the increases that are, you're seeing lately here, you think about broad societal changes, um, this correlation versus cause, I think is one of the hardest things for people to, um, to grapple with. But the TAD study is very important, I think, and you have cited it, you've tweeted about it, and, and you, you mentioned on your podcast, you just mentioned it now, but that's what you usually bring up. And now you, you do put out there that the TAD study is different in that it was funded by the NIMH, not by the drug companies. That's a, that's a score. Um, it also was longer. It went on for nine months. It's rare um, in studying treatments. So the treatment- which, which we can agree that most people are placed on the drugs much longer than nine months. And the clinical oh, yeah, trials absolutely. are approved you, in like eight weeks. Yes, no, but, and that's not because they wanna hide it. That's because it's expensive mostly. I mean, they'll, they'll do the, the sponsor is gonna do the minimum the FDA requires because it's very expensive to run these trials. But yeah, they don't have the enough ads, money. <laughs> you put the TED study out there to, as an example of a different, you know, funded by the NIMH, Treatment of Adolescent Depression is the TADS acronym. And essentially they had, uh, they started with four groups, but three treatment groups. And they, the, the placebo, the fourth group only ran for the first 12 weeks. But the comparison was um, Prozac, fluoxetine by itself versus CBT by itself with no medication and the combination of the two. And they ran that group for a total of 36 weeks. Again, a lot of, lot of limitations, dropouts, there's all, all kinds of things. They excluded severely suicidal at yes. risk folks. I mean, th yeah. that's, the major, that's the major point. I don't want you to leave this out. No, like, it's wouldn't. not like I've... this was a great study. Um, and Well, and it's one that you, a you lot point of, out. Well, I, I think that what stands out is how many kids became suicidal compared to the placebo group. Okay. That's what, but, that's what but, this stands out. But here's what else came out of the study that I think stands out that I, I haven't heard you say. 30% um, of the participants exhibited clinically significant suicidal ideation at baseline going into the study. Suicidal ideation decreased significantly in all treatment groups and showed the greatest improvement with the combination of CBT and fluoxetine therapy. So that's what the authors said. So this, and even in the two groups that got the fluoc, got do you know the how, Prozac. Do you know how researchers can come to a significant result? How they can create uh, statistical significance? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, you're, you're, the conclusion is that there was a statistical difference um, with suicidality, right? Like improvement in statistical as, difference. As they were measuring it, yes. Right. Um, same, same thing with the drug trials. Do you know how statistical difference, how easy it is to create a statistical difference? I, I do. I do. Go ahead. Explain. Yes. But, but, but I'm saying, what I'm saying is, is that, that that's when, not a conclusion that gives us any real world okay. clinical relevant information. Well, they, they recommended it. Um, hold on. 
There is no evidence from the TADS to suggest that fluoxetine induces mania or behavioral activation. Fluoxetine monotherapy delivered in the context of regular clinical management and careful monitoring will remain an important stopgap measure in patients in whom the earliest possible response is deemed clinically meaningful. Um, this is the author's talking, and I'm not advocating for this position. I'm, I'm, so the, I'm referring. The data I have I'm, here is that 34 adolescents treated with the Prozac had a suicide event, compared to only three on the placebo. But you have to look at the incidence of suicidal events prior to going into it too. It do, it doesn't um, matter. 34 were so when you when you one one is is provided a, a placebo. One is provided the drug. Now, I'm a, not a great math guy. You might be better at math than me. But when you're Hold looking on, the, about the a... The placebo was only the first 12 months. I'm sorry, first 12 weeks. The placebo group didn't do the whole study. You might be referring to the CBT group, which didn't have medicine, and they went the whole way. But the placebo group was only for the first 12 weeks. They didn't continue the full 36 weeks. So you might be referring to the CBT group, again, the group that did not get the medicine, but they weren't getting a placebo. Well, I, I'm going to post this um, with this episode and highlight this area of 34 adolescents compared to three. Now, it's a small cohort, so it's a small number of, of people. You did yeah. recognize that a lot just dropped out, right? Um, the, some of the most severe cases just aren't able to be well, treated, right? The most severe, well, they had to be treated. They couldn't be studied. Couldn't, the couldn't most be, severe. Which the is most the, severe didn't even enter the study. Which is the population that we're going to want to work with, right? That's where we care yeah. most about. I is, agree, and that's one of the limitations of all this research. <laughs> and and my, my statement here is that um, there's no need for an adolescent to be on an SSRI with the data we have. It's real. I mean, they have such high placebo response reactions that are mm -hmm. similar or if not outperform the drug itself without the risks. There is really no reason to give a teenager or a young adult an SSRI, let alone a frontline treatment. That's insanity. That is absolutely insanity. And when we talk about, you know, all right, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? I don't know if it's cognitive behavioral therapy or any type of situation where somebody's going to sit down and listen to the person, take time and understand how and help them cope with the challenges that exist. Right, we of course. we say no it's cog there. cognitive behavioral therapy. What is that? Are they going? I don't even. I'm I'm board certified in behavioral and cognitive therapy, and what people say is cognitive behavioral therapy is sometimes nothing even close to what I'm doing. But bottom line, it's this. It's it's sitting with somebody. It's understanding their emotions in context, developing some emotional literacy, and some coping, and that is so much safer than throwing a drug for a kid. And saying what they experience is major depressive disorder with an underlying chemical abnormality, and we should try them, we should place them on a drug. Now, listen, you might have some debate on here around the difference between suicidality and a completed suicide. My guess well, is. What's but what's debatable about that? I mean, those are just two different things. They are two different things. But mm -hmm. if one intervention is going to increase suicidality, one common sense kind of response to that would, well, that's likely going to then also, uh, you know, in, include a, a suicide event because one predates the other, right? You don't end your life unless you want to end your life. So wanting to end my life without ending my life um, 
might be two separate constructs, right? But if you're going to end your life, what, what predated it, what precipitated it is wanting to end my life. The problem yes. with it, it's, it's not, when we talk about an event that's fatal, whether that's homicide or suicide, not always it's, it's predating, uh, not all of it's suicidal ideation. Sometimes it is um, akathisia. It's, uh, it's a delusion. Yeah, Psychosis. My, my dispute, I think, Roger, is not with the concept of an increase. It's with the number you're attaching to it. It's not double, and it's not even close to double. The these aren't my numbers, Doug. Doug, these aren't my numbers. No, no you're, equating, you're conflating suicide with suicidality. Yes, they go together, but you can't, you can't apply the num same number to the two. You couldn't apply the same numbers, the risk of higher cholesterol versus the risk of heart attack. They go together, but 94 million people have high cholesterol. Only but, a few hundred thousand will have but, a heart attack. But Doug, attack. We're, not, we're in a in a study where somebody's closely monitored. That's a protection from that event. So agree, you know they're yes, being monitored. They're being monitored the, in a, in that a was clinical part of conclusion. They're, yeah, they're being monitored in a clinical trial, and then you're able to intervene. So you're protecting the suicide event. But in real world settings, somebody can take this drug and they don't have those same protections. Nobody would deny that's going to increase that risk of suicide. There's too I, many, there's too many parents that are listening either. to this, this podcast right now. Their mind is being blown with this type of discussion. It is risky. It is dangerous. Uh, but that, uh, yeah, I don't know if you can hear me. I, I am not denying the increased risk. I'm just saying okay, it that's is enough. not double. But, but then, then let's just leave it at that, right? There's, a, there's an increased risk, and that, yeah. that's enough uh, for us to recognize it as professionals. And there's an increased risk, which is also in the black box warning, of not treating the depression, whether it's for med with medicine or anything else. I always want to say of not, that too. See, yes. of not treating the depression. Yes. Okay. That means, doing, that's in that the means, black box that means doing nothing? No, I'm saying the black box warning, the FDA's warning includes that there are inherent risks to the condition itself. Yeah, I, I think what we're, we're talking about was what is effective treatment, right? So yeah. we're, not, we're uh, not saying that somebody becomes depressed and suicidal and we leave them alone. We're talking yes. about what is the safest and, and more effective and most effective that, kind of treatment. And certainly, and it, I don't think anyone's... Available. Yeah, no one's advocating you do nothing. I'm just saying you don't. We don't advocate for the intervention that's going to increase the risk. Does and watchful so waiting sometimes feel like nothing to people, or could people interpret it that way? They shouldn't. Even their adolescent alone after school for hours till the parents get home, anything like that. I mean, is that is that included? So watchful waiting waiting is actually taking the condition seriously, but not forcing an intervention. And since watchful waiting is going to result with a large percentage of population having natural recovery. So natural recovery is, it does, it means that the person feels really bad, but then they improve once the, whatever problem that they're facing resolves itself or they resolve it. So um, we're talking about from the physician's perspective because the physician's intervention is a drug. So um, for if, some, yeah, the majority. Yes. For, yeah, for the majority. So if the, if the physician cannot get the team in for, therapy, seeing a, some form of therapist, then that clinical contact of meeting them every week or a couple weeks um, seems to have a therapeutic effect. Absolutely. And, no and, doubt. and I, so I, I would say that's a, that's a really important intervention. I agree. 
So, all right. Um, looks like I'm going to lose my my battery here for my uh, for my Mac, and I might be losing you. I would have to get this plugged in somehow. So I think we're going to have to wrap this up. Okay. I'm glad we had this debate on on antidepressants and danger at the end of this podcast, but I want to be able to give you kind of the the last word because I ultimately think there's a lot of what we uh, about what we have is agreement. However, I have, I have Kelly on the microphone and uh, he has some questions from our Twitter audience. So I'm going to let him ask some questions. If I lose you oh, on wow. my, if I lose you on my computer, I'm just going to um, turn to, to Kelly's computer and we'll continue the conversation. Doug, first of all, the, you guys, it was really, really thoughtful, meaningful discussion. So I, I really appreciate it. Um, I just, there sure. are quite a few questions. I'm not going to ask you all of them, but a few of May them. May I ask? Yeah. I assume these questions came in beforehand, right? Yeah. They, you're not, we're not live. We're not broadcasting. No, 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 no. Okay. No. We're just okay. All right. I think they're just okay. curious because it, sure. getting a, getting an act, a psychiatrist to come on and have this debate, I think they were excited because we all want to see the, you know, both mm -hmm. sides and both points of view. And you, you both did a great job with this discussion today, but I felt like, uh, I think Roger promised, Hey, you know, if you have questions, we'll do some. So let me, if you're oh, okay sure. with it, okay. Absolutely. Last couple. I'll try to. There are a couple of questions about uh, deprescription uh, de from antidepressants. So one just wants to know, have you had any consultees where you've successfully been able to deprescribe uh, from antidepressants and benzos and, and things like that? Oh, sure. That, absolutely. Um, and it's, it gets complicated, but I, again, trying to, um, the majority of people that I through my career, I end up seeing I've already been thoroughly treated. They, they often are on multiple medicines. They've had multiple medication trials. That's why I think, you know, the, the placebo responders, you know, they, they get taken care of really early and don't, they often don't make it into a psychiatrist's office. But um, let's take the question separately because um, the benzos and the antidepressants are two different um, categories. Um, the benzodiazepines, I, I without equivocation, I have taken more people off of benzodiazepines than I have ever put on. And I, I, I try to prescribe it benzos only in very short term, limited situations. Um, the, the example I always give is they're a great drug for getting through a flight to Australia or getting through a funeral. And um, here's five of them, you know, and I think, and they're, they're great drugs for that, for a dental procedure, you know. <laughs> Um, not great management long-term, even of anxiety problems, and paradoxically often will worsen an anxiety problem over time. And I've seen dozens of examples. Um, the process of benzodiazepine withdrawal, um, there's the Ashton protocol um, that's, that's out there. And that, that's a generally good guideline. And the majority of people will do fine going at it that way. But there are some people who just really really struggle even with modest reductions. So you just have to go really slowly. Um, a great um, resource that we have is we have, we have, and I'm sure mo most me metro areas have uh, compounding pharmacies, which can make micro doses of these different medications. And you can take a 20 milligram capsule of, of uh, Cymbalta or you know, a drug, and then they'll make you a 19 milligram dose of it, you know, and do a gradual withdrawal. So the benzos, uh, lots of experience doing that. A usual reduction 
10% ish every two to three months, depending on how long a person has been on it. Some people have to do it even more gradually than that. Um, and in the majority doing it that way, you can be successful, um, but you have to take your time. Sometimes other medications can assist some of the anticonvulsants, um, protect sort of put a ceiling on withdrawal symptoms in, in benzo prescription. Uh, there are those, there is that minority that's out there though, that really um, get into trouble early with low doses. I think that's the exception, but just like with antidepressants, when you have tens of millions of people being prescribed these drugs, even if, even if a risk is low frequency, like 1%, it's still hundreds of thousands of people. Um, the, the antidepressants, um, it's a different ball game. And I, I think, um, um, the difference here in half-lives of the different drugs, I actually made a table, but I don't, I don't have it here to show you because it's on my laptop. The difference in half-lives among all the um, SSRIs and SNRIs compared with Prozac fluoxetine. And um, don't quote me on all the numbers here, but I have them basically right. So remember, fluoxetine Prozac was the first SSRI, came out in late 87. December, so effectively 88, 89. It was the only one for more than four years. Uh, Zoloft didn't appear until spring of 92. So those four years, Prozac was the SSRI. Now, half-life, that's the rate at which you clear a drug. You know, the, the amount of time that goes by where half of it will still be there goes on and on. Um, the half-lives of uh, Zoloft, Paxil, Celexa, Luvox, Lexapro are in the, um, at the low end, effects are especially the lowest, it's like seven hours. And um, Lexapro and Celexa go up to 25, 30-ish hours, and I believe Paxil and Zoloft in between. I can actually, I have this table already made, we'll send it and put it in the show notes. But Prozac and its active metabolite, Prozac's half-life is four to six days, and it, it has an active metabolite with a half-life of nine to 11 days. And the reason that's important is, especially with these early side effects when you first start on SSRIs and SNRIs, Effexor, Pristique, and Cymbalta, a lot of the side effects and the agitating effect is because the drug level itself is going up and down rapidly, okay? And the shorter the half-life, the more that fluctuation is prominent. And for many people, how it's affecting them not only is the drug itself having an effect, but that change in the blood level adds to it. And also in the withdrawal syndromes, and I know that that's what the original question was, but I feel like this information is critical. The withdrawal symptoms, when you try to reduce the dosage or come off of it, same thing, the shorter half-life drugs wreak havoc. And that's why Effexor Venlafaxin is one of the hardest because it has this short half-life, really hard to come off of. Prozac, on the other hand, flatline, four to six day half-life, that the blood level is even and rises very gradually. And same thing coming off of it. You could stop Prozac and a week later, the level's gone down hardly at all. Now, that doesn't mean people don't have withdrawal symptoms from Prozac, uh, fluoxetine, but it, they're much, much less frequent. So a common move when you're attempting to reduce dosages is to switch to Prozac first from, you know, Zoloft, Selex, Alexapro, get on the fluoxetine. Again, I'm not offering direct advice here, but a, a switch, talk to your provider about 
uh, could I switch to fluoxetine first? And on average, much less difficult to come off of and reduce it gradually. So I have to, because we got to end this, but so I'm going to kind of combine the questions. A lot of people really want to know about the, the myth of the chemical imbalance. There were quite a few questions on it. They want to know why a psychiatrist, now it's just in general, uh, never discourage patients from believing there was never a study that existed showing it. <laughs> well, can you give me an amount of time to respond? Because uh, <laughs> I, 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 th I do think this is important. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do a couple minutes and then, um, first of all, disclaimer, I have never told a patient you have a chemical imbalance, uh, ever. Uh, I've been asked that hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And I have some anecdotes so I don't think it's a helpful way to think about complicated human experience and in terms of an imbalance, okay? So I, I've, I would never encourage someone to, to, to think of their problem as an imbalance of chemicals, okay? I, I would also though, I would not tell a patient you don't have a chemical imbalance because I don't, for the same reasons, I don't think it's a helpful way to approach this, it's complicated. Now. This is back to our need for something specific and concrete. Uh, the drug companies love it. They love that idea of if, if there's a chemical problem, we've got a chemical solution. I think it's shorthand for a lot of doctors. It's an easier conversation to have, but it's just not a helpful way to think about it. Now, there is some basis to um, infer that, of course, chemicals affect us. I mean, everything we're talking about here, diet, sunlight, the medicines, hormones, these are all chemicals and our brain works through chemical signaling between nerve cells. It's, it's electrical within the nerves, but it's chemistry. And the original data that brought up these observations were just based on, hey, these people are responding to this intervention. These people get depressed. These people um, look happier on this tuberculous drug. What's going on there? This is before we even had identified these neurotransmitters. So the original hypotheses around the influence of chemical messengers, that data is all still there. Um, I'm more interested in what people do with these ideas and misrepresent them than the ideas themselves. And that, that's where I think we get into trouble. I mean, I think that's where what you're trying to do here in this podcast, you're trying to get at the nuance, but people are relying on us to talk about it sensibly. So um, I don't, you know, the Moncrief paper did, didn't say there is no chemical imbalance. It said we didn't find or serotonin. We can't nail that down. We, we you know, it didn't dismiss it. So I don't think it's proper to say there is no role for serotonin. Uh, we can, again, through observation, if you give a serotonin blocking agent like reserpine, again, and this is early 50s, um, you see a change. If you give a beta blocker, propranolol for high blood pressure, it blocks adrenaline and norepinephrine. People, a subset, get depressed. I mean, it's so. Doug, it's I, more how we talk about it. Yeah, can I can I just correct you real quickly? I, I think what when it comes to, to to science, you know what what Dr. Moncrief is saying is we have no evidence that there's an abnormality in serotonin that creates depression. There are people who are depressed, who have normal ranges of serotonin, who, when you try to attempt to, to test it in the, in the blood, you know, have, have more serotonin than somebody who is, is not depressed. It's, 
there's no causal factor is is what causal it, is the key is what they're is what they're saying but yes it's that's not how it's been communicated to the western Absol- public I, I and agree. so i agree um obviously all this is complicated i think you've done a, a a really good job today of discussing that that nuance and that complication um i mean i could the difference between serotonin being measured somehow, if we can measure it accurately, when I, if I got up, I did a run in the morning sunlight versus after three days of sitting in my home on the couch watching Netflix eating bad food is going to be different. And so I think Fair what enough. you're, yeah, what you're, what you're speaking to is that there is a, and I, I think this goes back to the, you know, the, the, the psycho neuro immunology research, right? Like everything kind of interacts with each other. So, I mean, I could have a thought of gratitude and that has a chemical reaction. I think the problem in our field is saying that a chemical imbalance that's genetic is why you're depressed and we have to treat it like insulin for diabetes. I I can't disagree with that. I'll I'll go back and say the original paper, the Schildot paper in 65, catecholamine hypothesis had all those disclaimers. This is reductionistic. It isn't this simple. All these other factors are in play, but it's what we do with that in our need for simplicity. And I think that's a bigger problem than the actual research, uh, as you point out. And, and we should alert the listener to understand, you know, how that got out there into the American public. Yeah. It was pharmaceutically funded. So they, they put psychiatrists, academic psychiatrists on the payroll who went out uh, into major conferences and they discussed this. They funded major news organizations. They bought spots or lines in American television and movies. And we were infiltrated with the idea that, uh, that we have found an abnormality that would lead somebody vulnerable to depression. And we have drugs that will correct that abnormality. So I don't want to... In, you know, there's just too many Americans that are just, who've been brought up in this culture. And that's what they've been told. And we don't want to gaslight them right now. I have a, when my daughter was in high school, she sat through a class where the teacher said that if you have depression, it's because you have low levels of serotonin. Now, and it, it, it's, it's not because people made that up. It's what they were told. And I can guarantee you today, we still have physicians that are suggesting the same exact thing. Yeah, no doubt. And I, and I would not defend that. Um, and I think Dr. Moncrief, uh, and, and there were other authors, um, within the first couple of paragraphs of the paper said, addressed it's a public perception problem. And I think her paper responded to that. And, um, but it is a, um, that, that belief is out there. Um, it's one of many. Go to WebMD. It's still on there. Yeah. It, right now you could probably Google WebMD and, you know, answer questions about why people have depression and they'll refer to it. Well, I feel lucky that, um, you know, my training director, who was later my boss, he he did not own a prescription pad the first 10 years he was in practice. And um, I feel lucky to have been trained in that broader, more complicated view. And um, I hope we can spread that approach uh, more informatively as you go on. So, um, there, again, there's so many questions for them, but I think uh, I think we got to kind of end that I, I, I you know. A lot of DSM questions, a lot of things that, that I think yeah. you can probably, they can maybe reach out to you and then, you know, you can, you can kind of, do that. but I, I really do appreciate you being here today uh, through my personal experiences that I told you in the beginning of this. Um, mm-hmm. 
I learned a lot and I really, both of you, thank you for this thoughtful conversation. Yeah. Dr. Beach, it might be, might be, um, important for us to get together again in the future to talk yeah. about some of the other issues we didn't get to. Let, let me put out a fun pitch to you when you recorded on Super Bowl Sunday. Well, I'm a been a lifelong Bengals fan and a, a Bengals Eagles Super Bowl is not it's got decent Vegas odds for next year. Maybe make that the prompt um, to talk again. <laughs> I went to both AFC championship games last year and this year. Oh, great. In I Kansas am, City. It's I am awesome. an Eagles season ticket holder. Um, don't yeah. go to as many games as I as I used to, but we are fanatical here in the greater Philadelphia region, as you as you well know. And uh, the Cincinnati Bengals have a great young team and a great young quarterback. So, well, he grew up in the area of Ohio where I did as well, and it's that's just been so gratifying to have sort of a homegrown Appalachian guy doing well. I sat in, I sat behind his parents on the plane ride home from Kansas City, just by almost accident. And I just congratulated them on raising such a fine young man. (laughs) (laughs) When you have the quarterback in place, you know, you're going to look at potentially a decade of opportunities to maybe get to the Super Bowl. Well, as long as he doesn't get sacked eight or nine times. True. uh, (laughs) True. And and his other knee. I think both him and Jalen Hurts are up for a substantial raise. And then that contract always influences team building. I would take less money and uh, ask him to get some better linemen <laughs> if, I, if I'm Joe <laughs> or so, Jalen. So true. Uh, Dr. Beach, you represent yourself very well. Um, I wish there were more psychiatrists like you out there. Uh, I, I think that uh, you, you know, your approach is, is one of safety, uh, com- understanding the complexity of all those issues and then viewing a range of options as a, as a medical professional, being able to inter- intervene. I think you do, um, you know, you really do care about the clients that you, that you work with. And that's certainly comes through with how you discuss these complex issues today. Um, unfortunately, you know, certainly in my region, we do not have as many psychiatrists that function in the way that you function. And we're, we're in a hospital-based system of quick 10-minute checks and, and, and multiple drugs for developing brains and vulnerable people. And it takes conversations like this for people to have an open mind and consider where we can move in a direction that we can help most people who are suffering. I think we step back and we say there's probably a lot more that's we have an agreement than when what we oppose. And I'm sure a physician like yourself is going to be open to all the new innovative, innovative research that's going to be coming out, certainly around metabolic illness and different nutritional interventions that exist and trying to improve the overall well-being and lifestyle of, of patients who are struggling with their mental health. We can't separate the two. We can't Absolutely. separate our physical well-being from our mental well-being as well as, and, and you know, my belief is that psychiatrists are critically important in the healthcare system but not in the way that they're currently being provided. I wish, I wish that psychiatrists would take time with their patients and even rule out other conditions. Depression should be a rule out. Bipolar disorder should be a rule out and be more aware of all other conditions that could influence why someone would be presenting that way, including drug reactions. And that's my hope Dr. for the Palmer's future. Book. Yeah, um, I read it and uh, so I've listened to his podcast. Yeah, a lot of people are very interested. I've had some patients do very well with nutritional interventions. And again, it's we got to find out what works for an individual. And not all many psychiatrists do want to have the broad view. I get to supervise residents at OSU. 
um, come every week for an hour, two of them. And I've been doing that for 15 years. And uh, we're just talking about therapy. We're not talking, they, they, their patients are being seen by someone else for medicine. We just do the therapy part. So, um, but you're right. They get into a system though, that functions a certain way and reinforces a certain kind of practice and restricts others. So. Agreed. Thank you for the radically genuine conversation, Dr. Beach. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.